0: Hello, everyone. This episode is going to be exactly the same as the others, except for this brief intro. I'm putting this information up top because I want you all to be able to find it easily, and frankly, because it's important that you listen to it. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about Los Angeles Municipal Code Section 41.18D, a sit-lie-sleep law that was passed in 2006. This essentially criminalized homelessness... In public spaces. So, all homelessness. It gave police not only the excuse, but also the duty to destroy the meager lives people without homes had built for themselves, further perpetuating a cycle of poverty and violence. Now, it was later deemed unconstitutional. However, a month ago, on July 28th, 2021, the L.A. City Council passed a new version of it with a few tricky addenda included to worm it out of another constitutional ban. This is despicable. This is disgusting. This is tragic and heartbreaking, and it can and will only result in more misery for a group of people who, um, as we'll see later in in this episode, have very much been forced into the position they're in by a system that requires poverty and precarity to continue. To read the ordinance, please go to bit.ly slash 4118-ordinance-full. If you're local to Los Angeles, you can help by connecting with Streetwatch LA, LA Can, K-Town for All, No Olympics LA, or the LA chapters of the Democratic Socialists of America, or the Party for Socialism and Liberation. There are direct actions planned, and they need all the bodies and volunteers present that they can get. If you're not local to LA, please donate to any of the organizations I've listed above. I'll have all the links in the show notes. If you yourself are unhoused or are under threat of being unhoused in L.A., Streetwatch can help you connect with either Unhoused Tenants Against Carceral Housing or your local tenant's union. If you have any questions, please, please feel free to get in touch with me through the show's Gmail, Instagram, or Twitter. I'll be more than happy to provide whatever help I can. A better world is possible. Thank you.
1: Many of you here work on east-west trade issues, and I like to collect stories that I can verify that the Russian people tell among themselves, so I'm going to tell you this one. It's about General Secretary Gorbachev. Seems that as part of the campaign to straighten things out there in his country, he had issued an order that everyone caught speeding, was seen speeding, should get a ticket, no matter how important they might be. But one morning he was out at his country home and realized that he was running late for a meeting that he had in the Kremlin, and he got into the, went out to get in his car and told the driver to get in the back seat that he'd drive. And he did, and down the street he went, and they passed two motorcycle policemen. And the one of them took off after him. And a little while later, he came back and joined his companion, the other motorcycle officer. And the fellow said, did you give him a ticket? And he said, no. Well, he said, why not? And well, he said, no, no, he was, this was someone too important. Well, he said, we were told to give it, no matter who it was, that they were get a ticket. No, he says, nah, not that. Well, he said, who was it? Well, he said, I, I don't know. I couldn't recognize him there. But his driver is Gorbachev.
0: Bark. The dogs do bark, but only one in three. They bark at those in velvet gowns, but never bark at me. The Duke is fond of velvet gowns. He'll ask you all to tea. But I'm in rags, and I'm in tags. He'll never send for me. Hark. Hark. The dogs do bark. The Duke is fond of kittens. He likes to take their insides out and use their fur for mittens. I've been thinking a lot about English prepositional phrases lately. A lot of them don't make much sense. Why do we see by torchlight and not with torchlight? Why is laughing in someone's face differently demeaning from laughing at someone's face? I'm sure there are etymological avenues out there that hold all the answers for these and more. But I'm pretty certain that I've got a handle on one particular pairing. It should seem pretty obvious why we say something or someone is under control. A relationship of controlling versus being controlled is necessarily one of an imbalance of power, weighing one side down with the burden of the collar while lifting the other by the influence of the leash. This relationship can be as direct and as literal as the one I just described, but it can also be something darker. Rules, however just or unjust, and systems, however efficient or absurd, have no meaning without enforcement and reinforcement. Without consequence, in what way could they be considered rules? If it isn't perpetuated, how is it a system? Examples of enforcement and reinforcement run the spectrum from the transparent to the opaque, from the obvious to the obscure. But however esoteric and abstruse these reifications may be, they are all violent control in the service of capitalism. And now, the inevitable question. Who are we willing to allow to be controlled to feed the beast? And will we even know we're allowing it?
1: And what worries me is that America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future's going to be the collapse of Empire, or the rise of the zombies, or something that wipes to all out. Superman's going forever. Superman, as far as I'm concerned, man. they save my life. Grim. Totalitarian state in Britain of the unreachably far future, like 1997. Comic book artists were not happy with Warhol, or Nick or any of the top artists, because they said, they took our industry and we got paid page rates.
0: I have a confession to make. I have an actual job one that isn't just writing about terrible comics in a terrible world. And like a concerningly shrinking number of people, I have a job that pays me just enough money to be able to eat, pay rent, go out with friends once in a while, and survive with just enough energy to return to work to keep making my boss more profit. Per company policy, I was given a work phone. Normally, I would never have considered that someone might have had the phone number it was assigned before that number was assigned to me. How naive I was. Thanks to a very loving and involved family who simply refuse to accept that I'm not the name they have saved in their contacts, I'm constantly part of an ever-shifting series of group text conversations. It's gotten to the point where I simply don't fight it. I've even wished Abuela, the evident matriarch, a happy birthday on two occasions. Unfortunately, I also get the predatory spam targeted at the number's previous owner. The latest one I received has me particularly aggrieved. Let me read it to you now. Snap notice, snap benefits updated. Your food stamps are eligible for a 25% increase this month. And then it shows a decidedly dubious link that only fools and horses would click on, if horses could have phones. This one is especially sinister because it coincides with an actual increase of 25% to the value of the benefits that participants in the program will receive starting just a little over a month from now. So, like the best lies, it has an air of legitimacy. For those of you who don't know, SNAP is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program provided by the United States government. It's the modern incarnation of what was formerly known as the Food Stamp Program, and people who don't use it still call it that colloquially today. It's, essentially, a grocery stipend for folks whose jobs don't pay them enough money to live on and we're going to explore this idea later in the episode because it's part of a system of give and take that migrates wealth, and therefore control, from the poor to the rich. I know that sounds counterintuitive since it's basically the government just giving poor people money, but stick with me, we'll get there. But first we have to talk about this awful comic book. You know those kinds of songs that have no space between them on the album? The ones where you have to pay attention to actually notice that the track title changes and god help you if you're listening on vinyl? That's how this issue feels. Although it may destroy any credibility I might have earned by writing more than a hundred pages by now about a comic book I don't even like, I have to admit that I read the Justice League in its collected volume form rather than the individual issues it was released as. Since I didn't have the luxury of punctuated publication, I had to double take on the transition between Issue 5 of Last Issue Fame and Issue 6, which we're discussing now. And to foreshadow, the distinction between Issue 6 and Issue 7 will be even blurrier. We open on most of the League's reaction to seeing the transformation of the town of Stone Ridge, Vermont into a bizarre and alien cityscape. It has been altered somehow by the growing powers of the Gray Man, some poor schmuck who has been an ancient source of prison labor, for a magical group of guardians known as the Lords of Order. As allies of Dr. Fate, who's apparently in the League, but he never fights with them or appears with them or hangs out with them, you'd expect these Lords of Order to be at least sort of cool about some things, but if you've listened to the last episode, you'll know they're not. Remarking on the chaos of the strange new shape of the buildings and streets, Mr. Miracle compares it to his homeworld of Apocalypse, which, with a name like that, isn't good. The League is down one member, Guy Gardner, the racist Green Lantern who was just knocked unconscious by Batman last issue, and up one guest, The Creeper, whose alter ego is the radically anti-justice League TV anchor, commentator, and in my opinion, real MVP, Jack Ryder. It's unclear at this point if Jack Ryder actually knows that he's the Creeper or not, because the character was one of the many that were revamped or reimagined after the universe-shaking crossover event that I mentioned in episode 3 called Crisis on Infinite Earths. Even though the 80s version of the Creeper has some sort of drug situation that addles his mind when he's transformed, it doesn't seem like Ryder is unaware of his transformations. However, that's impossible to tell here. When Ryder was discussing his trip to Vermont with the hideous Teenage Mutant intern in the last issue, he mentioned nothing, to himself or otherwise, about involving his superpowered side in any way, shape, or form. All we got out of that interaction was the very logical and commendable line that he was going to, quote, nail the Justice League's hides to the wall. As we'll see, this is precisely the opposite of what happens. Captain Marvel disappeared at the end of last issue while attempting to get Jack Ryder's assistant, or maybe producer, to a hospital in Stone Ridge. Batman now expresses his doubts that Captain Marvel might still be alive, citing how powerful the Grey Man must be if he's been able to subdue Dr. Fate. This concerns the selfish and very cowardly Blue Beetle, who very clearly does not want to be involved in any of this.
1: No, 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 wait a minute, don't don't do that yet. maybe we can figure this thing out. We
0: cut to the Gray Man who, if you'll remember from the previous episode, is using power he surreptitiously accumulated while basically being enslaved by the Lords of Order to turn everyone on Earth into miserable losers like he is by robbing them of their emotions and willpower and sensations. Much like corporations, he's the beast, gorging himself on the life force of as many people as he can. He's standing in the old 1940s cinema that he has made his home base, and holding a splay-fingered right hand aloft, and covering his heart with a tightly-elbowed, clenched left fist. His mouth is open, and his teeth are bared in a savage combination of a sneer and a shout. However. All the monologuing he's doing is lettered in the floating text boxes that are comic book shorthand to indicate that the words are internal thoughts rather than active speech bubbles. So, is he just standing there silently? Is he just waiting for someone to show up so he can be dramatic at them? Normally I'd give it the benefit of the doubt, and read it as a dialogueless montage, since the next panels illustrate places that are being affected by his worldwide campaign of making people boring. But he senses the presence of the League and immediately cries out, but wait. And it just feels like the whole thing was in real time. He turns to the levitated and rigid bodies of Dr. Fate and Captain Marvel, whom he's got trapped on the other side of the room. So did they just get to watch him stand there and quietly make weird faces near them? The Gray Man begins to rant again at the pair's immobile forms, but as he blames Dr. Fate and the Lords of Order for his predicament, Dr. Fate attempts to interrupt and claim that whatever has happened was, in fact, the Gray Man's fault. But he's cut off before we can get the full story. Don't bother to keep this in mind for later because if you're assuming that it's a setup to a reveal, like it would be in a normal and competent script, you're going to be disappointed. It's at this point that the Grey Man determines to demonstrate his new power to Dr. Fate, and he invades Captain Marvel's mind and forces him to fly off to confront his ever-encroaching comrades. This gives us the perfect segue into today's main theme, control. I'll hold him. This episode is sort of a continuation of episode 4, in which we discussed how accumulation works under capitalism and the brute force security used to protect it. Now, we're going to explore certain ways in which capital and the state exert physical control over the labor being exploited in pursuit of that accumulation, and then we're going to investigate how the state has helped the capital class exert and maintain economic control by shifting wealth from the workers to the owners. And along the way, I'm going to include examples of propaganda that have been used to justify this massive increase in inequality. I warned you all I was going to talk about this in the first episode of the podcast, and by gum, I'm going to do it now. Uh, later, though. Let's begin with an overview of basic principles and set up a brief hypothetical. Maxwell Lord and his bitter rival Lex Luthor have both set up radioactive baby poisoning factories on opposite sides of Metropolis. As I talked about in episode 4, the money that these monsters of unspeakable depravity invest in the production of the radioactive baby poison is known as capital. The henchmen they hire come to work each day at the factory, operate the big silly assembly line that the glowing green bottles of radioactive baby poison get produced on, and generally use office supplies and utilities to get even the most boring administrative work done. All of those objects mentioned are known as the means of production, simply the tools the henchmen use. And that is all private property because, in this nightmare we're living through, it's generally agreed that Maxwell Lord and Lex Luthor own the things that their goons use to make them money, which will then be segregated into profit and capital. And here we have to make a distinction between two specific kinds of capital. According to Marx, there's constant capital and variable capital. Constant capital is all the non-human inputs into the production, while variable capital is the human labor input. Quick clarification, this is a purely Marxian distinction, and it's not to be confused with, nor does it necessarily contradict, the other economic principles of fixed input versus variable input, because labor can be a fixed input within the definition of those, because they don't quite overlap. In fact, it's Marx's focus on the humanity of the production that distinguishes him, and makes his work a useful analytical tool. But back to the radioactive baby poisoning factory. Obviously, Maxwell Lord and Lex Luthor are evil bastards, so they'll necessarily understand a key detail about the power they have over their henchmen. They have to play a delicate game of balance and control when it comes to hiring, scheduling, and paying. The key detail that informs this dance of Gossamer is this. The more potential henchmen there are that are out of work, the more demand there will be for spots on the radioactive baby poisoning factory floor.
1: I do not want your money. I didn't want it in the first place.
0: Finding the sweet spot nestled between their internal needs and the influence each one's hiring and compensation practices have on the others will allow Lord and Luthor to pay lower wages than they would have to if the ratio of jobs to workers were tilted in favor of the workers, because the workers could then demand higher wages or just leave to get a better-paying job that was also in need of workers. There's a lot of math that goes into this to account for all sorts of variables, and Das Kapital is very boring to read. But this is the basic gist of this power dynamic between labor and capital. Friedrich Engels, Marx's BFF, would have referred to the unemployed henchmen and or goons as the reserve army of labor. So let's bring this in to the real world. I'm going to draw heavily here from a 2011 essay by Dr. Forrest Stewart, the director of the Stanford Ethnography Lab, titled Race, Space, and the Regulation of Surplus Labor, Policing African Americans in Los Angeles' Skid Row. In it, Stewart discusses how, in the 1970s, multiple manufacturing industries in Los Angeles began outsourcing their labor to workers overseas. This is important because it reduced the number of jobs available to the working population of the city, which, as we've seen, allowed the business owners to pay lower and lower wages. This coincided with a Reagan administration cut by more than $17 billion to the Section 8 low-income housing policy. Suddenly, not only was there less work, but there were also fewer places that an unemployed worker and their family could afford to live. This forced a torrent of newly-shafted people to find affordable housing options elsewhere, if at all, which accelerated the shift of marginalized peoples, particularly Black and Latinx, but also Asian populations, into most of the areas of the city of Los Angeles that they live in today. In particular at the time, many dispossessed people found their way into downtown Los Angeles, drawn by a host of single-room occupancy hotels that had been built to house migrant workers in the New Deal era. All this led to city officials enacting a plan to deliberately funnel these impoverished Americans into the Skid Row neighborhood of downtown, and then to quarantine them once there. They attracted the displaced population by physically relocating to the proximity of Skid Row, What few social services remained after Reagan's vicious budget slashing? You can Google it right now and see the SRO Housing Corporation, Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health, Los Angeles Mission, Volunteers of America, U.S. Veterans Center, and more, all within two blocks of each other. Meager amenities such as public restrooms and parks and sitting areas were to be the carrot that kept the great unwashed in the zone. But the stick was a little bit more complicated. Thanks to, quote, area business owners and city planners seeking foreign investment in the struggling financial district, as Stewart puts it, the final component of the containment plan called for the construction of a buffer zone, a three-block border made up of light manufacturing and warehouses. The buffer would deter exit from the quarantine area as the psychological comfort of the familiar Skid Row environment will be lost. The Skid Row inhabitant will feel foreign and will not be inclined to travel far from the area of containment. It really shows you just what high regard the city planners had for these people. Fast forward some 30 years, and Skid Row's population demographic is, surprise, surprise... Seventy-five percent black. Picture this. It's 2006. You're a black resident of one of the single room occupancy hotels in Skid Row. You drag yourself out of bed in the morning for work. You fastidiously wipe down the sink and the mirror in your room after getting ready. It's just your small, defiant ritual in the face of creeping decay because, for right now at least, this is your space. You step outside. Your phone buzzes. You carefully flip it open because it costs you so much money. And you're very proud of the victory it represents. It's a text message from your mother. Neither of you are very good at it, but texting lets you keep in touch more easily than before. You move to a planter and sit there, composing your response and trying desperately, like the rest of us were, to navigate T9. Suddenly, you hear a voice behind you. It's a Los Angeles police officer. He's telling you you're under arrest. You ask him why. He threatens to hit you. Then he explains that, thanks to the new Safer Cities initiative, He's responsible for enforcing Los Angeles Municipal Code Section 41.18 d which bans sitting in public areas. You've seen enough damage the LAPD has done to people around you to know to go quietly, but you can tell the officer is considering hitting you anyway. You're going to be very late for work. You're going to lose your job. But don't worry. The city has a plan for you. The next thing you know, you're issued a citation that you might have been able to afford if the process by which you received it hadn't cost you your income. So you're offered a choice, jail, or a new program started by the very same initiative that got you in this situation. It's called Streets or Services, and you have to live at, attend counseling by, and work for nonprofit services that are suspiciously in line with the new police presence in Skid Row. You choose the latter route, even though it means losing your room at the SRO. However much time, however many days or weeks it takes, you finish working off your citation. In this new, quote, freedom, you sit down to rest and plan what to do next. You don't have a job. Then you're immediately arrested again because there are now 100 police officers assigned specifically to patrol your neighborhood, your home, And it's back into the cycle once more. The reason that all this just happened to you is simple, if a little convoluted, in implementation. You just made someone money. Since the 80s and the crumbling of government services for families and individuals, homeless outreach nonprofits have increasingly relied on two sources of income. Private business and, quote, pay-per-bed arrangements with the government, That don't result in funds for services until after those services have been rendered. This presents two major and deeply duplicitous problems. The first is that it is very often the private businesses that are funding these nonprofits themselves that are the initial cause of the unemployment. Through complicated math, they figured that it's cheaper to donate a (laughs) tax deduction portion of their profits to perpetuate a system and a situation that allows them to keep the reserve army of labor high in order to save money overall by paying now justifiable lower wages to their current employees. Thus, they need the police to reinforce the inescapable cycle of poverty in order to keep enough people out of the formal workforce. The second problem is the nature of the pay-per-bed agreement with the government. The nonprofit cannot afford to help people until after it already has, meaning that it has to constantly expand those services in order to recoup costs. It should be apparent to anyone paying attention that the idea of needing more and more homeless people in order to help homeless people is inherently self defeating. But that certainly didn't and doesn't stop many nonprofits from expanding regardless and using some less-than-helpful tactics to do so. In fact, in a bid to justify their continued existence to their funders, many of the religious nonprofit groups fed into the cycle of rhetoric that was responsible for the modern demonization and moralization of poverty in the first place. Rhetoric that was picked up almost instantly by the American press. Thus, on top of all of this, on top of powerful industry moguls moving manufacturing jobs to areas where workers had near zero labor rights, mostly because of American military conquest, otherwise known as imperialism, on top of a government slashing the meager social protections United States laborers had, and on top of a policing and profit system that physically and violently forced the marginalized into labor for poverty wages, There was also a major push in the media to justify this deliberate destruction of millions of people's lives by characterizing the poor and the indigent as being lazy, as being dirty, as being deceitful and conniving, as being unworthy of empathy or help, which in so many cases means being unworthy of life. A disgusting and patronizing 1983 article from the New York Times, I'm sure you guessed, titled Breakup of Black Families and Perils Gains of Decades paints a picture of a wholly destabilized black population in the U.S. in the first two paragraphs, even going so far as to say that, quote, many black spokesmen were finally calling attention to the problem without saying who those spokespeople were, of course. The article gestures toward the argument that the welfare program, aid to families with dependent children, had long been discriminatory against black families, but it brushes that aside in favor of the notion that welfare is, itself, what causes the spiral of poverty.
1: Well, I'll tell you something. If he's got any idea that I'm going to pay for it, he's got another thing
0: coming. I just got through paying for the wedding. Let's look at some more. Here are some choice selections. From the Washington Post, May 5th, 1982, Caught in the Web of Welfare. Quote, Despite the jobs she found, the high school diploma she earned, and the small, semi-detached house she bought in Riverdale, Henrietta Henry knows her family is becoming the sort that makes social workers cringe. From the New York Times, October 31st, 1986. A way way to to break the cycle. Quote, Today's poverty and welfare dependency stem considerably from social patterns that constrict the potential for achieving even modest gains. These patterns include deterioration of the family structure, teenage pregnancy and parenthood, and dropping out of school. From the Washington Post, December 3, 1981. Welfare fraud crackdown here, getting results. Quote, It's tough to get our line attorneys enthusiastic about going after some welfare mother over $2,000, Alprin said. That's very tough. Again from the Washington Post, June 10, 1985.
2: There really is a welfare dilemma.
0: Quote, to discourage poor people from taking entry-level jobs is to condemn them to dependency and its attendant pathology, including the erosion of the work ethic, even while alleviating their hunger. From the New York Times, July 1st, 1983. Turn welfare in a new direction. Quote, the fragmentation of poor black families is an undeniable and unhappy fact of life that burdens all society. For years, however, black leaders resisted direct efforts to help the black family by arguing that the real issue was racism. From the Washington Post, February 19, 1986. Teenage pregnancies cost welfare system $16
2: billion in 1985, study says.
0: Quote, Center Executive Director Judith Senderowitz, calling the rates of teenage pregnancy staggering, said, These numbers bring home that teenage pregnancy is everyone's problem, not merely the pregnant girl and her family's problem. From the New York Times, February 5th, 1986. Reagan seeks welfare plan to free poor from government dependency. This one's nefarious. the article itself isn't actually pro-Reagan's plan, and in fact, lays out the kind of damage his budget would do. But only 40% of Americans read past the headlines. I have like a million tabs open in one window just of New York Times articles like this. I have a million more in a different window that are all Washington Post. To the Washington Post's credit, and this is the only time you'll hear me say that, They actually did run multiple headlines, not just articles, but headlines, that directly called out the problems with the massive budget cuts. But not nearly as many as they ran with the gross and disgusting headlines. I'll link one of the pervading themes of many of those articles to other specific ways that capital controls labor in just a minute. But let's check back in with the Justice League for a bit. After the Gray Man sends Captain Marvel off to presumably destroy the League, we cut back to those big awful losers as they're investigating the bodies of several of the apparent victims of the Gray Man's psycho-magical onslaught. According to Mr. Miracle, they're still alive, thankfully, but what he doesn't report, however, is that they're probably now terminally dull and uninteresting, much like this plot. The rest of this page is just Booster Gold chickening out, Batman responding snarkily, and the Creeper being absolutely baffling. I have genuinely no idea what his purpose is here. Sure, he's coyly dodging all of Batman's requests for more info.
1: I'd like to get my hands on that dirty stinker just once.
0: But also, how would the Creeper slash Jack Ryder know what was going on? He's literally just a guy with yellow paint on his face. Which, now that I say it, who can jump and fight a little gooder than regular people can. Also, he's apparently pumped full of drugs. Seriously, this comic makes no sense and I just don't understand what people see in it. This is when the possessed Captain Marvel shows up and asks a question that I've been meaning to all along. Why are you wasting your time? Actually, he asks, why are you wasting your time asking him questions? But my version is more broadly applicable to this whole thing. He then swoops down from his dramatic perch and yanks Booster Gold and the Black Canary into the air. He then hurls them far out into the oblivion of Freefall. Of course, Booster Gold can fly, but what's important is that this is the second memorable Black Canary moment that I mentioned way back in episode one. Does that count as way back? I was a week late on episode five, so maybe. Anyway, this is when Black Canary resists being saved by Mr. Miracle because it's so undignified. The subtext is, of course, that she views herself as an independent superhero, just as capable as any of the men on the team and in no way in need of saving. I totally get that, and I want to think the writers, Giffen and Demetrius, included this scene in good, but clumsy faith, although she's definitely still a token character. I believe my conclusion is reinforced, though, because after the rest of the group sees her being gently placed back on the ground by Mr. Miracle, the Blue Beetle makes a joke at Canary's expense, and she totally clowns on him. He
1: says one word that's out of line, just one word, I want you to pop him right on the jaw.
0: Also, I haven't mentioned yet, but her costume, while disgustingly 80s, is at least impractical in an unwieldy way and not in the sexist and revealing way that is so often a staple of the male-dominated comics industry. Of course, after a bunch of heavy-breathed fan backlash, the creators will shove her back into her skin-tight fishnets soon enough. Batman has directed the Marfin... Marfin? Marfin? Batman has directed the Martian Manhunter, the League's other heavy hitter besides Captain Marvel, to go fight Captain Marvel. What follows is a titanic clash far beyond what any other member of the group could hope to survive. Sort of. Actually, the Martian Manhunter just swings a big rock at Captain Marvel, and then they punch each other a lot until Captain Marvel is able to shrug off the Gray Man's presence in his mind. I'd like to remind everyone that Captain Marvel, Earth's mightiest mortal, is, in fact, a ten-year-old boy, a child, a yingling. And while I won't go into it here, I do plan to explore this and other elements of children in comics and relate them to the real-world notions of child labor and the school-to-prison pipeline. And this is as nice a segue as I'm going to get to announce that I'll be doing bonus episodes between this season, which ends after the next episode, and the next one, which will start as soon as I regain feeling in my typing fingers. Stick around for the end of this episode for more details on how to access those. For now, I'll briefly touch on some of what I'll be talking about in the bonus episode in order to further drive home this one point. The government deliberately drives people of all ages into either the formal workforce, an incarcerated workforce, or unemployment, the reserve army of labor. Besides what we've just learned, another way they do this is by eroding programs like the former Aid to Families with Dependent Children, which then forced mothers to work longer hours or take on multiple jobs, leaving school as the only social safety structure for their children. Of course, since the Reagan welfare cuts also had the effect of further impoverishing poor communities, the values of the properties went down in those areas, which then underfunded the school systems. With no money to pay for actually effective resources, and inundated by a media clamoring to cast poor children of color as an up and coming generation of crack-fueled psychopaths, more on that in the bonus, more and more schools had to rely on Justice Department-funded school resource officers, whose only function was to criminalize and harshly discipline mostly black students in order to drive them out of the school system and into the carceral one where they would be absorbed into a captive labor force essentially no different from the one in the 1860s. To bring it back to episode two, this is the inevitable outcome of the profit-driven system promoted by our liberal forebears, Locke and Mill. And as this was a project of the conservative power establishment at the time, this is why it's still not incorrect to classify American conservatism as liberalism, be it classical or neo. Let's bring it back to the comic, though. After the Martian Manhunter wallops the bejesus out of Captain Marvel, the scene cuts away to an elsewhere that is presumably New York City. We're in Maxwell Lord's skyscraper office, wouldn't that be wonderful, a big office in a 20 story building? No. And a surprising guest has shown up. Hal Jordan, the original modern Green Lantern, not Alan Scott, the Green Lantern who was Dr. Fate's compatriot in the 40s. He's expressing to Lord his deep concerns about the direction Lord is taking the League in. I don't understand how, because it's never been established how Lord controls the League. It's not even established what his relationship is to them. It makes no sense. Although he praises Lord's business acumen, he questions the openly bigoted Guy Gardner's continued presence on the team, which I have to say is a solidly 21st century liberal pundit opinion to have. Lord accuses Jordan of being jealous that another Green Lantern is taking his place on the team, which Jordan thoroughly rebuffs before stalking out. As he watches Jordan go, Lord hints to the audience. That he's not working alone in his manipulation of the Justice League. Before we use Max again to dive into corporate economic control, it should be noted that you can find a rash of more recent articles that all wholly and firmly debunk one of today's main points of interest, the myth of welfare dependency. And that's great. Except you have to be skeptical of the rest of their content, because more often than not, they'll twist the simple fact that getting a little bit of money from the government doesn't make people not work into a grand web of apologia and absolution for capitalism itself. And we'll see how this works in just a bit. Obviously, we've covered the reserve army of labor and all the violent finagling that that takes. And we've discovered the pincer tactic of destroying support systems and criminalizing basically just being black and poor. But what about the less immediately perceptible forms of control? Forms that are a step removed from the physical. Let's get one thing straight. Economic deprivation is violence. It denies people life-saving resources, be those food, shelter, medicine, whatever, This may not be the bang of the bullet, but it is the whimper of want. And corporate lobbying to destroy welfare, universal health care, and the minimum wage are all part and parcel of another, less obvious symbiosis between government and private enterprise early 20th century economist John Maynard Keynes developed a general theory that, in part, states that unemployment happens because capital won't spend money on labor when it's apparent to them that labor is saving money. Or, to clarify, inversely, capital will spend money on labor when it recognizes that labor is spending money. This is because, for the most part, what capital spends money on and what labor spends money on are two different things. Capital spends money on investment, and labor spends money on consumption. As we established in episode four, capital must invest in its labor as little as possible in order to make profit off the goods it produces. The rock bottom money that Maxwell Lord and Lex Luthor spend on their henchmen, i.e., the wages they pay those workers, is thus an investment with an expected return. Whereas, the money that those henchmen would spend on a bottle of Lord or Luthor brand radioactive baby poison at the shelf at Walgreens would fall under consumption, because both the money they spend and the good they spent it on are now necessarily used. And herein lies the rub. Because that henchman worked for as low a wage as possible for Lord or for Luthor in the pursuit of making a product for whichever of them to mark up and sell, and then also bought that marked-up product, that means that even less of the money in this whole exchange ended up in the henchman's pocket, and more of it ended up back in the solid gold safe of either of the evil rich assholes. But now, Lord and or Luthor a new dilemma. They've spent all this money on this piss-ant little goon, and they want to wring as much or more back out of them. In the real world, this problem has already been solved for them, and I'm sorry to say that one of the solutions is the SNAP program. I need to make yet another something very clear here, because I know that it can seem on the surface that I'm using a lot of right-wing talking points. I've criticized the liberal welfare state and corporate regulatory policies before. And I'm going to keep doing it. But this is not because I think they don't help people. Nor do I want them gone and replaced with the Amazon Smile version of company Scrip and a population reliant on Nestle bottled water because all the clean water sources are now polluted to the point of being non-boil safe. No. I criticize them because, however much harm they purport to reduce, they do nothing but extend the life of the system that allows the corporations to do the evil things they do. If I kidnapped a child from the park and brought it home to make it use its tiny little hands to clean behind my toilet, and you said, okay, but you have to feed him and give him a hard hat, oh, but also don't worry because we're going to pay for half of his food, you haven't exactly fixed the problem. And then imagine that you said, oh, hey, actually, we're going to give him enough food that you can just take half of it and he won't starve for a while. Imagine that, because that's what's coming up next. We know that Max and Lex must pay their workers as little as they can get away with to be as profitable as possible. We know that the state deliberately dispossesses and incarcerates people to keep the wages of the, quote, fortunately employed at that lowest level we know that the state has decimated the support for the families of those that work to shunt some into the workforce and some into the reserve army of labor. So the final piece of the puzzle, then, is to ensure that whatever money our capitalist supervillains are forced to pay their workers to keep them returning to work each day, at least semi-coherent, is recouped somehow. And since the wages they pay the workers are so paltry— The workers cannot afford to spend them on the product that they helped to make or move, often not even once, but mostly not in any kind of sustainable way. And every single non-employee-owned company is on track to do this to its workers. Every. Single. One. They have to, to survive. You've got to! It's our only chance! Logically, then, this will spiral into chaos, as the entire laboring class will inevitably no longer be able to afford anything from any company, because no company is paying enough for its employees to afford to live. Thus, a conundrum. But not to worry, because just over the horizon, I can hear the distant whirring of the government money machine. But first, let's hear again from one of the biggest corporate defenders of them all, the New York Times. In 1984, the Times published a glowing article titled, The Hot Ticket in Retailing. In it, the writer practically drools on the founder of Walmart, Sam Walton, and nowhere at all is it mentioned the plight of the workers. Symptoms of that plight, however, are brought up, but you'd have to know what you're looking for to understand where to place the blame. Quote, so far, Walmart's rapid growth has been managed with remarkable vision. Its strategy combines an aggressive expansion program with a state-of-the-art computerized merchandise information system, a tight rein on expenses, a strong distribution network, and a progressive employee relations program. Quote. So, here we see what we feared all along. A tight rein on expenses means underpaying labor. Progressive employee relations program means slick internal marketing and probably some union busting. And to top it all off, aggressive expansion means it's getting bigger. And now, nearly 40 years after this article ran, we've seen how big it's gotten. haven't gathered by now, what is left of the tatters of welfare usually gets vacuumed up by the corporations that don't pay their workers enough money to continue to be alive. Workers get their pay subsidized by the government, and then they spend that money in restricted ways that benefit the corporations that underpaid them. Let's look at Walmart. In October of 2020, the Government Accountability Office reported on a study of assistance program recipients in 11 states. It was titled, Millions of Full-Time Workers Rely on Federal Healthcare and Food Assistance Programs. This is not surprising when we realize that, in order to qualify for SNAP, you must be working, unless you meet certain criteria that exempt you. Thus, the default state of a SNAP recipient is to be working. The report describes how in nine of the 11 states studied, Walmart is one of the top five employers of people who receive SNAP benefits. This very clearly indicates that Walmart is not paying its employees enough money to live. It gets worse, though. I looked up the discounts that Walmart associates get. After 91 days of continuous employment, whatever that means, they receive a 10% discount card. It's good for all items in the store that aren't on sale of any kind, except for grocery items. It does apply to fresh produce, but Walmart severely marks up its produce prices in comparison to other stores. Let's break it down. Walmart underpays its employees. The government gives the employees money so that they'll live. Walmart offers a 10% discount to employees, so they'll buy from Walmart. The government mandates that the money it gives to the Walmart employees can only be spent on food. Walmart doesn't give its employees a discount on food, except on produce, which they've made more expensive than Whole Foods. And if you think this isn't control or coercion, Walmart also doesn't give employees discounts on gasoline, So even where Walmart isn't the only place in town to get food, they still further coerce their employees not to shop elsewhere, since gas is so expensive. All this, then, just means that the impoverished workers receive money from the government that they should be able to spend to help stabilize their lives and financial situations, i.e. Keynesian investment, but instead are forced, are coerced, are controlled into spending on consumption. And that goes straight into the pockets of the corporations that are responsible for these people's destitution. That's how Walmart can afford again and again to descend upon small towns and prey upon them until the whole place is completely barren of other outlets and all its inhabitants are forced into working there. This is how corporations grow. And how they transform once vibrant natural and cultural areas into essentially feeding apparatuses for the beast. This is how the beast controls the world. When you think about it, this is essentially what has happened to Stone Ridge, Vermont. So after the teaser that Lord is working with someone, or something, else, we're yanked back to Stone Ridge, where the Justice League is descending upon the old cinema housing the Gray Man and Dr. Fate. The League is following the lead of the Creeper. Again, it's never explained how the Creeper knows what's going on, But in this case, they probably didn't even need his help because, for some reason, the old cinema is the only building that hasn't been transformed into some grotesque approximation of itself. Which is also never explained or explored, just like everything else in this godforsaken comic. My guess is that either Giffen or Dematteis has just gone to see the living daylights and loved it, because the perspective keeps focusing our attention on the prominent marquee displaying that that's what's showing. And man, I could do a whole episode on that movie, so if I talk about it too much here, it'll take all day. But we'll just leave it this. It is an imperial propaganda piece, like all James Bond movies, about a Soviet general who defects with Bond's help. But it turns out that the general is actually a traitor for different reasons, and he's planning some shady shit. And then James Bond and the Mujahideen team up to fight him. God, the 80s were wild. I mean, it makes sense historically. The sides line up, however misguided or manufactured some of them might have been. But wow, what a dumb movie. Anyway, the League peers inside the cinema to see that Dr. Fate has taken advantage of the Gray Man's vulnerability, after exerting himself to control Captain Marvel, and has broken free of the Gray Man's magical bonds. The two are shooting magic fist lasers at each other, because that's obviously the best way to convey the awe-inspiring might of ancient, unknowable power. Here, the Blue Beetle, callow as ever, makes the joke I've been refusing to make this whole time, and claims that such a fight would be out of their league. Batman completely disregards the trepidations of his team and leads them into the fray.
1: All of your worry for
0: nothing. Naturally, an army of the Gray Man's duplicates descends upon the group instantly. Worry for nothing. Booster Gold is the first to fall to their soul-sapping attacks. Batman just leaves him there. Worry for the remaining members rally around Dr. Fate on the stage, which I could call cheesy and melodramatic, but hell, I'd have put the climactic battle on the stage too if it were up to me. The Gray Man taunts Fate for the opening Fate will be presenting if he attempts to shield his teammates. But the Gray Man is interrupted by the Creeper dropping onto his head and shoulders, which buys Fate just enough time to get the shield up and around everyone. This proves to be worthless, as the gray man simply breaks through and brags about all the power he's consumed from people's dream essences. And again, we're never really shown uh, what that means. One by one, all the less otherworldly team members fall, leaving Dr. Fate surrounded by the battalion of middle-aged, turtleneck-wearing supervillains. This is when Dr. Fate kicks into overdrive. Remember how I said twice that you shouldn't be worried about the gray man as a bad guy? This is why.
1: Oh, of course I will. What nonsense.
0: Fate calls the Gray Man pathetic and reveals that he's just been holding back in order to help him.
1: You're a doctor. You have confidence in him.
0: Now that he's seen that the Gray Man is beyond help, he casually zaps the whole building and everyone in it away. This leaves the Martian Manhunter, who has arrived just slightly too late, standing outside and glowering at the smoking emptiness where the cinema used to be. He laments that he's powerless at the moment to help the rest of the team, but he takes solace in the fact that he can at least get the still unconscious Captain Marvel to medical attention. He swoops off with Marvel in his arms and vows to return, feeling helpless in the face of a situation so glaringly out of his control.
2: Greetings, once again, to you fine folks out there in Listener Land. We've got a wonderful lineup of community activities to announce to you today. But first, I'd like to bring to your attention a slightly pressing matter. It would appear that several of the town's precocious youngsters have gotten into the art supply closet at the community center and have begun a well-meaning but probably misguided campaign of retouching the town's automobiles they've included in their beautification manifesto a list of folks they're going to surprise next, which I'll read to you now, so that you can be proactive in your flattered refusal. The first person is... Oh, excuse please, please excuse me for just one moment, folks. What the hell is this? No, I've never heard of that. Why would I have? Fine, yeah, no, yes, I'm on it. My sincere apologies, folks. I've just been handed another announcement. Apparently, the producers at our station have set up something called a Patreon, and they urge you all to subscribe to it. For every tier $5 a month and up, you'll receive access to a slew of bonus episodes that will be released between seasons, including fascinating interviews with other radical creators and enthusiasts, and a shout-out from Bud, the radio announcer, who is, of course, yours truly. And for every tier that's $10 a month and up, you'll receive the bonus episodes, the shout out, and a monthly what we're reading and why comics reading list, curated by the show. And for every subscription of, oh my, $50 a month and up, you'll receive all of that and more. Probably, we're being vulnerable here and admitting that we haven't figured out that one yet. And hold on just a minute it would appear that we already have two patrons. We at Collective Action Comics would like to extend the sincerest super radical thank you to new patrons Mary Lee Rice and J.O.H. Your support helps keep the struggle to be continued. I don't remember what we were getting into just before this, so please help me recall by writing to us on Instagram at Collective Action Comics Podcast, on Twitter at Call Comics, C-O-L-C-O-M-I-X, or via Gmail at Comics at gmail.com. And once again, tune in in two weeks for the next thrilling installment of Collective Action Comics!